we're talking about this in the first service because uh, I was doing research on this. We've already reached the 11th of January, so um, a lot of people who have made New Year's resolutions have already dropped them. Um, how many of you make, made a New Year's resolution of some kind? You can raise your hand. I won't make you tell us what it is. Just raise your hand. Um, it's great at the new year to start something new. Over half of Americans make New Year's resolutions every year um, and then quickly break them as a general rule. Uh, I looked it up. A study was done, a big study with a lot of money done by a big university to find out how this really works. Do New Year's resolutions help people make changes in their lives? How many people really keep these resolutions? All that kind of stuff. Turns out that 25% uh, of people who make a resolution on January 1st have already blown it by January 8th. So in the first week, there's already 25% of the people that are out of contention. By the time it's been a month, uh, a third of the people are out of it, and by the time it's been six months, over half of the people don't even have any re recollection of what it was that they said they were going to do or why they said they were going to do it. Um, and, uh, you know, New Year's resolutions are this part of our culture, and not a, such a bad idea, really. Um, because some of you know from experience that you have either at New Year's time or some other key time in your life where there was a natural transition taking place and you made a commitment and you said, I'm going to make a change here and you're a better person today because you made that change. So that's a really, really good thing. There's nothing wrong with a New Year's resolution. It's just that we need to recognize it for what it is. And for a lot of us, it's not much. Um, I have made a New Year's resolution this year. I have resolved that every sermon that I preach is going to be compelling and earth-shattering and life-changing, and that none of you are going to fall asleep while I preach. Um, I don't know if I can pull that off because you have to do your part, but I am going to preach with a squirt gun. So <laughs> we'll see how it works. I think we can all do it. You make a resolution to stay awake. I'll make a resolution to try to keep you awake, and we'll go from there. But it's natural to make these resolutions this time of year. Um, and like I said, it's not a bad thing, but I just want to suggest that as you may be looking at things like, you know, do I need to lose a few pounds, or do I need to get my budget in line, or is there some habit that I need to quit, or whatever it is that you're thinking you're looking at this time of year, that as you're looking at those little changes that need to take place in your life, and you're thinking about how you can work on that, I just want to remind you that God has an even bigger picture in mind for what your life can be like in 2015. And it goes way beyond one little habit that you need to break, or it goes way beyond the, the way that you manage your money, or the kinds of things that people usually say. People always make commitments. The number one commitment every year is what? Lose weight, which is why the gyms are full, and people start new diet programs. I don't know if you noticed, but around from, from the end of December, the first couple weeks of January, like something like 99% of the commercials on television are for Slim Fast or Nutrisystem or one of those kind of things because um, they know that that's what we're thinking. Uh, lose weight, get our budget in order, spend more time with family and friends is a big one because we get caught up in the busyness of life. These are good things. Nothing in the world wrong with these things. It's just that God has something much, much bigger in mind than whether or not I lose a few pounds this year. And I was thinking about this because uh, most of us have cell phones now, right? You, you have a cell phone, don't you? And on your cell phone, I should have had one in my pocket, but I, I never have one with me just in case I forget to turn it off and it rings while I'm preaching. But um, it would be great to hold it up and show you. And I could have Ricky call me. And then when I could show you, you know, this picture of Mickey Mouse that comes up when Ricky calls, right? <laughs> and... Because we all have that when somebody calls us, we know who it is usually, right? 
because it gives us their name and some little ringtone that we've given to them and stuff like that. And, um, and we recognize who it is and decide whether we're going to take the call based on that, right? And, how, and I know that you have let your phone go to voicemail many times because you looked and said, I'm not having this conversation right now, right? And so whatever it is, you know why they're calling and you don't want any part of it. And, and that's a kind of a new uh, opportunity, shall we say, that we have now because we have cell phones that will identify the caller for us before we have to say hello to them. Back in the old day, the phone would ring at your house. You would have to walk over, pick it up before you found out it was your mother-in-law. If you could have found that out earlier, life would have been better, right? So nowadays we have a caller ID. So there are some friends that when they call, you know why they're calling. Maybe, the, maybe you owe money <laughs> and they're calling because of that. Or maybe they're calling because they only call when they have a problem. Their boyfriend broke up with them and they need a shoulder to cry on. Or, you know, it's 2 in the morning and they went out to start their car and their car doesn't start. And could you, would you mind, if you're not doing anything right now, coming out to, uh, you know, South L.A. to start my car for me? Um, there's all this kind of stuff where we look and go, okay, this person is a person. I know why they're calling. When God begins to tap you on the shoulder, when God begins to call you, if you had a spiritual cell phone, and God begins to call you, and you recognize that ringtone, and it, it, start, it rings and you go, oh, it's playing Amazing Grace, I know who this is, right? And, and when God begins to call you, when he begins to get your attention, and he does it for all of us in one way or another, especially if you're a Christian and you've been walking with the Lord and, and you're used to the voice of the Holy Spirit, we all begin to recognize when God is beginning to say something to us and he's starting to push his finger into those spots that we don't want him, like you go to the doctor and you go, hey, doctor, it really hurts right here. And what's the first thing he does? He like, goes like that and goes, does that hurt? That's what God does, right? So when God starts poking his fingers into the sore spots, we have a tendency, I don't want to speak for you, but I'm guessing this is true for you, we have a tendency to hear that ringtone and let it go to voicemail. We have a tendency when there's something that we know God's going to want to talk to us about that we don't want to talk to him about, that we let it go. And we, we begin to let our mind go somewhere else. We, we set aside that Bible reading or that prayer time and say, I'll come back to that later. Or we tune out in a sermon. Sometimes, you know, it doesn't matter who the preacher is. You could be sitting there and you're just listening and you're learning, going, okay, this is fine. And all of a sudden, God just like punches you in the nose and you go, oh, man, now he's speaking to me. This is about me. He wants me to make a change in my life. And when that happens, how do you respond? Because the truth of the matter is, if you read your Bible, you will find from beginning to end that this is a book that is filled with stories about God reaching out to people and inviting them to come and get involved with him. It's all filled with callings. Whether we're looking at God going in the, in the Garden of Eden back after they've just eaten the forbidden fruit and now they're hiding from God, you remember that? And God wants to come and have fellowship with them and he comes and he says, where are you? And they say, oh, we're hiding from you. God's calling them. He's inviting them into uh, renewed fellowship with him. Or you look at, if you go to Genesis 12, there's that, the beginning of Genesis 12 is so cool because we have this guy, Abram, he's a pagan and he lives in a pagan country and he doesn't know anything about God, but all of a sudden God reaches out to him and begins to speak to him by name 
And he calls him and he says, Abram, I have a plan for your life, but for you to experience that plan, here's what's going to have to happen. You're going to have to get up from where you are and you're going to have to leave everything you're comfortable with and everything you've known and you're going to have to go with me and you're going to have to come wherever I take you. And Abram basically says, well, how am I going to know when we're there? And God says, I'll tell you. You just come with me and I'll let you know when we're there. And Abram, the whole story of Abram who becomes Abraham, his whole life story is a story of this journey that he takes with God where again and again God calls him to a new sense of trust, a new sense of faith, a new sense of obedience, and he experiences God as he walks with him. And the same is true with Moses and the same is true with David or the disciples. When God calls the disciples, he, it, just take, for instance, uh, Levi who becomes Matthew, the writer of the book of Matthew. Uh, we don't know anything about Levi except that he's a tax collector, which means he's bad, okay? If it was a country western movie, he would have a black hat on. Nobody likes these guys, okay? You don't like tax collectors in our culture. In that culture, yeah, <laughs> finally I got an amen. Uh, in, in that culture, tax collectors were the most hated people in society because not only were they collecting ridiculous taxes for the Roman government to oppress the Jews, but the tax collectors would also add money on top of what they were required to collect, and that would be their bonuses. And these guys lived in big homes, and, and they had like, you know, Mercedes-Benz camels and all of that stuff. These guys were rich because everybody else was poor because they had the power to collect these taxes. So Levi actually had an office there in town, and, and I don't know what it looked like. Maybe it was on a big glass high-rise, I don't know, but the way I picture it, it's like just like a little booth, you know? I don't know if you've been like in third world countries. Every time I'm in Uganda, it's like this. There, you know, there's like a marketplace, and the marketplace is just like filled with these little businesses, you know, and you could fit maybe four people in the place, and they sell a few things, and that's how I picture the tax office. And I, I picture Levi just sitting there, you know, with maybe one of those half doors, and the, ha the top half is open, and he's sitting there, and Jesus is just walking by. We've never heard of Levi. And says, Jesus was walking along, and as he was walking, he saw Levi in the tax office, and he said to him, come with me. And the scripture says, and Levi closed the tax office and went with Jesus. And as far as we know, that tax door was never opened again by Levi because he ceased to be Levi and became Matthew. He became a follower of Jesus. Just on that day, because Jesus just happened to come by, look at him and say, you, come with me. And he came with him. And so God has these callings that he does in our lives that are powerful and significant. And when we respond to those callings, it changes everything. We're not talking about um, a small change here. Because, again, don't get me wrong, minor adjustments are good. It's fine that we need to make some minor adjustments in our lives as it goes. But I'm saying that when God gets involved in your life in a new way, it's the difference between change, which is like I'm going to lose 10 pounds, and transformation. There's a huge difference, right? So if you go to the beauty salon today after, after worship service and get a haircut, that's a change. Some people might notice. Now, if it's me, nobody's going to notice. But Rachel cut off like eight inches of her hair last week, and everybody went, wow, did you get a haircut? She probably had to answer that 20 times, right? You could go, that's a change, and, and people will notice it. That's, that's what we mean when we talk about change. But if you have a caterpillar and it goes into a chrysalis and becomes a butterfly, that's transformation. All the difference in the world, right? So when God gets involved in our lives, 
He doesn't just want to change a couple of things and fine-tune a couple of things. I don't know if you take this as good news or bad, but the truth of the matter is that when Jesus gets involved in our lives, he says, listen, I want to get all the way in. I, I want the throne of your heart. I want the control panel of your life. I want to take over. You know, you know in, uh, in Star Trek, some of you nerds in the, uh, in the congregation will know this, in, in Star Trek, I always thought it was cool whenever... Um, whenever uh, Captain Kirk had to go, like, because he had to go fight a Klingon or something, and he would say, he would say, Spock, take the deck. Take the what? The, the calm. The calm, yeah. See, I'm, I'm not nerdy enough to know. I could talk to you about, like, football stories, but anyway, I'm, I'm so stretch for me. Anyway, and, and then Spock would move into that big captain's chair, right, that swiveled all the way around, and he gets to tell everybody what to do. Here's the deal with that stupid illustration. Jesus... When Jesus gets involved in your life, he, he's not, <laughs> man, I'm going to stretch this. He's not just the, like, uh, expendable crewman in the gray outfit. He, red. <laughs> oh, thank you, geeks, for helping me. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, I had a black and white TV. I had no idea. Um, but, <laughs> man, so let me tell you what it's like to be a preacher and be me. So <laughs> as things like this happen, I go on this train of thought, and then I have 40 more things to say that are really funny, but I probably shouldn't say them. So I'm going to stop right now. Anyway, so Jesus, right? Jesus, Jesus decides that he is going to sit in that seat. He's not getting on the ship unless he gets to sit there. That's the deal. And I, I think it's a mistake for us as Christians... And even as preachers, we really, my generation of preachers owes the world an apology because, because of this desire to somehow like attract more people and, and get big numbers and all those kind of things. And nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying sometimes we're tempted to kind of to, um, minimize the actual gospel as though the only calling that Jesus ever makes is, hey, come to me, let me heal your leprosy. Come to me, let me restore your sight. Come to me, let me raise you from the dead. And we have all those pictures in the scripture of him doing that, and those are great stories. And there's nothing wrong with that calling that Jesus has to come to me. In fact, it's a repeated uh, calling that we see again and again and again. It's just that it's not the only calling, you guys. When Jesus says, come to me, it means more than come up to me, have an encounter with me, and then go away. When Jesus calls us to him in any way, whether you're a person who's never known Jesus and the gospel is all new to you and you come to Jesus because you hear the gospel and you find out there's this God who loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you and you can have eternal life if you'll just trust in him and your, your heart is melted and you know that you know that you know that it's true and you have to respond, whether, whether that's where you're at when you first hear the gospel or whether you're a person who's known Jesus for many decades and God still calls you on a regular basis to get involved with him more, it's so important for you to understand the calling of Jesus is not just a temporary calling. It is an all-or-nothing kind of a calling. He's not interested in giving you a haircut. He wants to give you a new life. And that's a completely, completely different thing. So let me show you what I mean. There's this famous story that Jesus told. You can find it in your Bibles in Luke chapter 15. So if you have a Bible, turn to Luke 15. We're going to look at the story that is undoubtedly familiar to most of us, if not all of us. And it's known as the story of the prodigal son. 
Now, who can tell me what the word prodigal means? It means wasteful. Ten points for the lady in the front row who recently got a haircut. Um, Luke chapter 15, he's a wasteful son. Why is he wasteful? Because as the story tells us, he's a rich kid. And, and he gets to that age, whatever it was in their culture, whether it's 15 or 18 or something like that, and he gets to that age where it's time for him to sit out on his own and be a man. And so he says to his dad, listen, I know I should be a rich kid because I come from a rich family, but you haven't died yet, which is a major bummer because I haven't got my inheritance. So since you're not kind enough to die, what I'd like for you to do is just give me my inheritance in advance. And he gives him his inheritance. The father gives him his inheritance. And that starts this process. Let me read it to you, beginning in verse 11. Uh, Jesus said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together, went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered or wasted his estate with loose living. He went to another country, okay? Now, the way I picture this, he gets the money. Let's say it's a million dollars. His father says, you know, your inheritance is a million bucks. Now, how many of you think it would be a good idea to hand an 18-year-old a million dollars? Not a good idea, right? Not, no offense, 18-year-olds. But um, if you're going to give somebody a million dollars, give it to me. I can handle it better. Um, a million bucks to him at 18. So what does he do? He says, I'm going to go away to a far country. Okay, another country, right? We're assuming here, it doesn't say so, but Jesus is telling the story and he's speaking to Jews. We're assuming this is a Jewish boy. And he goes off to this faraway country, wherever this is, some other country that is not a, a Jewish state. And he goes there. And as I picture it, his first stop on his way out of town is at the Ferrari dealership. He buys himself a Ferrari, and he heads out in this car, and he says, I, I, I can do anything I want. And you know, if, if a Ferrari costs you 200 grand, you still have 800 grand left, and that's a lot of money. You can have a great party. You can do some, some really cool stuff. So he heads to wherever it is that was the Vegas of his day, and he goes there, and he begins to just sow his seeds and he is having a blast, and he is spending money here and buying things there. He's the life of the party. He's got a ton of friends. Everything is going well for him, but it doesn't continue that way. Look at verse 14. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. We don't know how long it took him to spend everything, but, you know, if you, if you had that kind of money in your pocket and you went to Vegas and you didn't have, and you didn't have any wisdom, it could take you about 15 minutes. Or maybe it took him 15 months, or maybe it took him 15 years. I don't know how long it took him, but he spent everything. And the economy crashed in that country, and now there's no jobs, and there's no way to get a job. Verse 14, he spent everything. Severe famine occurred in the country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. Now, is that the kind of a job a nice Jewish boy wants? No. That's as bad as it gets, right? And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. I just want to stop here for a second because there's a, there's a point to be made here that all of us could probably benefit from. It's one thing to be the one who's living wastefully, right? Some of us know what that's like. Some of us may be doing that right now. Some of us may have some experience with that in our past. It's also another thing to be the one who is, um, uh, has a relationship with the one who is living wastefully. 
the one who is being rebellious, the one who is uh, facing the consequences of their decisions, right? I think it's a fascinating point to be made here in verse 16 at the end that he's in this terrible state. He's living with these pigs. He's, he's like wallowing in the mire with the pigs and eating the food out of the troughs that the pigs are eating in. I can't imagine being much lower than this, right? And it says, no one was giving him anything. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me. I'm not suggesting that when somebody is hurting and when they're downtrodden and when they're in need that we should turn our eyes away from them and not help them. But we all know what it's like when there's a person who is insisting on living rebelliously and they are doing things their way and they will not follow God and they are just going to do things their way and they are reaping the results of the life that they're living. You know that when a person is away from God and they are reaping the results of the life that they have been living, that's the best thing that could possibly happen to them. And sometimes we, especially if we're parents or friends or siblings, we want to rush in and rescue, don't we? want to say, well, okay, I'll give you a few hundred a month to keep you going. And you know what's going to happen? That person is just going to continue to be there. But it says, when no one was giving him anything, his life took a major change. Because here's what happens. When you have nothing else to look for for help except God, the chances are you might look for God. That's what happened in this situation. This kid had nowhere else to go, so he decided maybe he should go home. It says, when he came to his senses, verse 17, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger? <clears throat> Excuse me. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he comes up with a plan. He says, I'm going back to my father's land, and I'm going to get there to the ranch that my father owns, and I'm going to say to him, Listen, I know I blew it. I know I'm not worthy to be your son. In fact, I'm not your son anymore because I already spent the inheritance. But if you would hire me and just let me live out in the barn with the, with the guys who are taking care of the sheep and, and all of that, if you would just do that for me, that would be so great. He figures his chances with his dad are better than anywhere else, so he goes back to his dad. Um, verse 20. So he got up and came to his father. While he was still a long way off, I want you to notice that. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. We don't find the father in this story sitting in his office somewhere doing paperwork while his son is out there living in whatever kind of terrible situation he's in. He knows what his son is up against. He knows that his son was not ready to handle this and that his son is living in rebellion and he is not feeling good about that. So where do we find the father when the son finally starts making his way back? It says, Jesus goes to, makes the point of saying that while the young man was still a far way off, his father saw him. You know what that tells me? His father was looking for him. His father was anticipating that maybe he'll come back, and I don't want to miss the opportunity. I want to see him the moment I could possibly see him. And so I just picture the father there standing on the highest hill that he could find looking for his son, and he sees a dot in the distance, and he begins to, to, to bend and, and look closely, and he sees it looks like his son's gait, the way he's walking. So he begins to walk just a little closer, and pretty soon he notices that's his son's hair color, and then he realizes, that's my son's face. This is my son. And so what does the father do when his son finally is just sort of hobbling back home, embarrassed and ashamed? What does the father do? Does he stand there on the hill with his arms crossed and watch him walk? It says he runs to him, he embraces him, and he kisses him. 
and he welcomes him back. Now, I think you guys are a pretty uh, bright group of people, um, a few of you notwithstanding. Um, so I'm pretty sure you can follow this, right? Who does the sun represent in this story? He represents us, right? Can't we all relate to this story? I mean, every one of us, at some, at some level, we can relate to this story that we have decided we wanted to be in charge, that we wanted to do things our way, that we were wasting the things that God has given us and we found ourselves in a bad spot. All of us at some time or place have had this in our lives. I'm trusting. And so the son represents us. Who does the father in the story represent? God. And so what is the message that we're supposed to get from this story? That yes, we are rebellious and God knows we're rebellious and though we are rebellious and he allows us some freedom to rebel against him. He never stops loving us the way a father loves a son. He never stops longing to have a reconciliation with us. And he is constantly reaching out to us and saying, I want you. You are not wasted in my mind. You are not gone in my mind. You are not dead to me. I'm on the hillside every day watching to see when and if you'll ever come back. And if you do, if I just get a glimpse that you're walking in my direction, listen, all you have to do is turn around and I will run the distance that I have to run to meet you where you're at. That's our God. That's how he feels about us. Even though what we deserve is to be written off, he doesn't do it. That's what Jesus is all about. And so he tells us the story of the prodigal son and we see this son returning. And if we go down, his, his brother gets all bent out of shape because why are we taking care of the son? Because he tells him, listen, um, bring, a, bring a robe and put the robe on him. Bring, uh, bring a ring and put a ring on his finger. He says, kill the fatted calf. We're going to have a celebration today. And his brother gets all bent out of shape. How come you never killed the fatted calf for me and my friend? And he says, because this brother of yours, look what it says in verse uh, 31. He said to him, son, you've always been with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and he has begun to live. He was lost and he has been found. This story, by the way, follows two other stories that Jesus tells. He tells one about a lost sheep. You remember that story? And the shepherd leaves the 99 and goes after the one because he so longs to be reconciled to that one sheep. And then there's a story about a lost coin, that a widow has lost the coin, and she basically turns her house upside down until she finds that coin. And when she finds that coin, she so rejoices because it has so much meaning to her. And then he tells a story of a prodigal son. And in every case, he's trying to say to us, I know you're lost, but I am searching for you. I am calling to you. I have a plan for your life that is so much bigger, so much grander than you could ever imagine. Don't you dare stay lost. I won't let you stay lost. I'm going to make a point to find you. And so when the prodigal son got to the point where he was getting no help from anybody and he knew he was a mess, he did not need a self-help book. He did not need a New Year's resolution. What he needed to do was surrender to his father and return. And what he found when he did that was that his father welcomed him with open arms. <clears throat> I'm sure most of you have seen that TV show, Extreme Home Makeover, on ABC. You know that show? They, they find a house that looks like this, right? And then they go in there, and in five days, they turn it into a house that looks like that, right? <laughs> That's basically how that works, right? And, and uh, so I was thinking of that show because I'm always astounded every time I see that show. I'm like, Seriously, in a week you can do that? I mean, this house was like falling into a sinkhole and all this stuff, and they just, you know, 
create a whole new thing. What I found watching that show, because you know I have a long and storied tradition in the construction industry, <laughs> not. Um, what I found by watching that show is that if a, if a house reaches a certain point, you just don't fix it. You knock it down and you build a new one. And it's as though God looks at us and he goes, look, I know that some of you got into the place where there's just mold in the walls and holes in the roof and the floor is caving in. I know you've gotten to this place in your life where it is an absolute mess. But he says, listen, don't worry. If you will just answer my call, when I call you to come to me, if you'll just answer my call, I can knock all that down. It's already pretty much falling over. And I will build on that foundation a new life. And there's this great verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. It says, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's what it is when you answer the call when Jesus says, come to me. All things become new. Jesus is not interested in adding himself to our lives. Like you're making a stew and you taste and you go, it needs a little more salt. Jesus is not interested in being a little more salt in your life. He's just interested in that captain's chair. And that's what he insists on. And he can change, transform lives. But it begins with this calling where he says in one way or another, come to me. Come to me. And, he, and there's, this, there's this great 